Welcome to the Founders Keepers podcast, interviews exploring stories behind the founders of change-making businesses in social impact, healthcare, and health tech, and what makes those founders tick. I'm your host, Dr. Grace Hatton, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Sharon Rogers, the co-founder and CEO of Emiriad. Emiriad is an LA-based clinical stage biotech company working to advance effective therapies for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease bringing together decades of experience in their team with the singular goal of easing the devastation the disease causes. Their lead drug candidate, AD101, is a small molecule under development for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease and will be entering phase three clinical trials later this year in 2023, following a successful series of randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials where it was administered as an add-on to stable denepazil therapy. Sharon was in fact the global lead and development strategist for the highly successful Alzheimer's disease treatment, Aricept, as it was then branded, otherwise known as Denepazil, and from a career that started in figure skating and restaurant ownership, she has worked in the pharmaceutical industry for three decades and more recently in the startup space, leading the VC-backed Emiriad. We talk about delivering food to half-naked frat boys, her expat life in Japan, and why she is so passionate about advancing a cure for Alzheimer's. Let's get started. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I understand you have an incredibly interesting story and background that has led you on your journey as an entrepreneur to now being the co-founder and CEO of Myriad. So I'd love for you to tell me your story from the beginning. Thank you very much, Grace. Uh, my background is long. It's sort of interesting in its own way, but I think the backgrounds of all entrepreneurs get a little bit interesting. Very average childhood, very average uh, tour through college, except for the fact that I was pretty much on my own from the time I was around 18 years old on, so financially, everything else. So I was always working and supporting myself while I was in school. So I think that's the the very early ember of entrepreneurship actually is what are you willing to do to get the education that you need to do more? You look at where you might want to go and think, how do I get there? Because the road I'm on now doesn't necessarily lead there. Here are some tools that I need in order to keep moving forward. So I worked put my way through school, worked, put my way through school, went first through what we call community college here in the U.S., and then to a young university that was willing to give me a bit of a ride because I was a good student, still working now that entire time, and then finally getting into graduate school where, again, still working. My first two years in graduate school, I was I was working part-time uh, all that time to just sort of be able to get there. And then at the same time, though, I wanted to sample a lot of things, a lot of perspectives. And I ended up going into pharmacology, especially from the medical school aspect of it, uh, just by the fact that I thought it was fabulously interesting that there was an entire world where you were allowed to give people experimental drugs legally and see what happened. And if that sounds a little bit odd, I mean, that's that at the heart of most people who get into this area, there's this idea of trying to do something new and different with a lot of uh, sometimes molecules that already exist, like willow bark being found to be a good anti-inflammatory and pain reliever. There are lots of compounds out there. We get all the way to, uh, I don't know what the trade name is in the UK, but Latisse that helps grow eyelashes that was a glaucoma drug. And one discovery went to another. And so a product meant for glaucoma ends up to be a massive product for cosmetic medicine. There are just tons of stories like this. Plus, it's fascinating. I like the way the body works. Uh, I think that 
the human body and biology in general is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's been a fascination for me since the youngest days I can remember. And I can also remember my parents calling me Doc Rogers when I was about three or four. Because you'd hear little factoids like how far does a sneeze go and uh, what what's involved in healing after you fall down and hurt yourself. And so I'd, I'd get these little factoids and repeat them back to my parents. And uh, they were very approving, I guess, but they would listen and let me go into all this stuff that I thought was fascinating. So it was a long story. But my first business, my first entrepreneurial business is when I started with my boyfriend while we while I was in graduate school. He was not in graduate school. I was. I had tons to keep me busy. He was sort of looking for a career change on his own. And uh, he, uh, we both come from sort of a figure skating background. We didn't know each other at that time, but he'd been coaching skating for many years as a formal sort of triple gold medalist style skater. And he really didn't like coaching skating because he'd spent so many years being coached himself. So while I was in graduate school, it was a good time for him to think about something different to do. And he had coached in Buffalo, New York for several years. And so we got this idea to start a, a Buffalo Wings restaurant. And this was in the 1980s. So this was before they got popular, basically outside of Buffalo, New York. And we had this idea to do it. And what other things could we put with it? And so the two of us, along with the son of his former skating coaches, we all decided we'd pool our money, $5,000 and a lot of el elbow grease, and open a restaurant. We had no idea how to open a restaurant. We had no idea how to manage a restaurant or how to manage a kitchen or how you order things or what we were going to do. But it's just, uh, you know, these are skating people. So by definition, you're a risk taker. By definition, you're not worried about making a fool of yourself in public because you do that every time you step on the ice. And uh, we all got together and decided to do it. So I was busy scrubbing fryers and, and getting ready to deliver food to people while I was studying for my qualifying exams in law school. We rented space from uh, the Hare Krishna's religious group. I, I don't know if you remember them or not. Yeah, so they're on the corners, very peaceful, very kind, easygoing. They own a lot of property in the Midwest, and they happen to own this property on the Ohio State University campus. And so we negotiated a rent from the Hare Krishnas, and we opened our restaurant in um, it's about mid to late 1982. So this was a long time ago, 1982. And we called it Buffalo Wild Wings and Weck because there was a sandwich, also a beef on Kemmelweck. And uh, then we ended up opening another one because uh, a guy who sharpened my skates at the local rink, he always liked to go skiing and he wanted to open one in Steamboat. Here's another person who has no understanding of the food industry whatsoever. And so we opened one with him because we thought Steamboat would be a cool place to go and be able to ski. And then we opened another one on another campus and we just kept opening them. Uh, Many years later, uh, my boyfriend and I, we got married and then we split up. But during that time, it just everything kept growing. And now it's a nationwide public chain here in the U.S. called Buffalo Wild Wings. Sports bar, there are probably thousands of locations across the U.S. But it wasn't like that when we started. And by the time he and I split up, it wasn't like that really when we ended. But it was just this idea that, sure, we could do this. How hard can it be? And the answer was, it was really hard.
It was really hard. I would be delivering food in my car when I was supposed to be studying and these fraternity boys would open the door to their frat house with no clothing on. <laughs> you just deliver the food. So that was the first the first sort of really entrepreneurial thing we did and it ended up being successful. But I think it ended up being successful because um we refused to conceive of the fact that we couldn't do it. We we just sort of guess that we would figure it out. And so when I then left graduate school and I already had a job in industry at a large cap pharma company, and I got that job basically by writing letters to the vice presidents of a bunch of of pharmaceutical companies telling them why they should hire me. I didn't know them from Adam, but I got about five different interviews. And while I was at a clinical pharmacology meeting, I had my interviews there and I ended up getting a job. And so one day I was doing my dissertation defense and in a lab coat with rat blood splashed across it. And my hair was tied back in a paper towel. And then I finished my work, celebrated with my friends, got in my car, drove across the country to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And on Monday morning, I was sitting in an office in a suit and I had a secretary and people were giving me credit cards. So just picking up on that, tell me more about that experience and what you gained from it. It was just sort of surreal, but it was that quick a transition into that life. And this particular company, while it was a large cap company, it had more consumer goods and other things in it, about five pharma companies, several different divisions of consumer goods. And they would often hire people with very little experience and see what floated to the top. And they would give us loads of responsibility. So I ended up being there not knowing what I was doing at all, but suddenly being their head of clinical pharmacology. And I just, you know, worked hard and thought I would figure it out. I would grab a hold of protocols. I would talk to people. I would see how these things were done. Uh, I would try to get an idea as a scientist, you know, what's going to make this a robust study that rather than just something that you do but don't think about how do you answer the scientific question that's presented what scientific question is being presented and how does it fit in with the business and so i think any entrepreneur will tell you that they go into lots of things that they have not a clue about how to do but there's an overwhelming confidence that you can figure it out and this was the same thing. I thought, okay, this is great. They're going to let me do all this stuff. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to learn everything I possibly can and go forward. So that was my start in the business. And then I went from there to Roche, the house that Valium built, and they were starting a brand new unit within a medical center. And they wanted someone to sort of scientifically develop that. So I thought, okay, this is cool. I haven't done that either. Let's see what happens. And it, it brought back a lot of the work I did in graduate school, which were clinical studies in our own unit at Ohio State University Hospital. And I applied a lot of those lessons and some new ones that ended up being uh, reasonably successful. I would be able to get on a scientific podium a couple times a year and present something or other. And that's all the company cared about was making a scientific name for this unit. So that was good. But at the same time, I sort of missed line management. And line management is when you take a drug and you move it forward into the company to realize the company's goals. So when uh, a company called Azai, which was the number five or six company in Japan, was going to start operations in the U.S., I got a call from an executive search agency 
through a friend who knew me and said, why don't you call her up? She might be really good for this job. And so as I, I was the sixth person hired by this company. So when I say that it was a startup, it was a startup. I was the sixth person hired. One other person who was the medical director, who was my boss, very terrific person. This was a great yin and yang pairing that we had. And then some uh, management for accounting and general management that were from the head office in Japan. So we were the two only Westerners in the office of six people. And Azai now has a, a good history and a long story, but I went there because they had a drug in their pipeline called E2020, and it was for Alzheimer's disease. And uh, there were other drugs similar to this that were currently in clinical development, but they were failing massively. And I remember saying to my friends as I was looking at this job saying, I like this pipeline though. I like this. These drugs sh should work. And as you can only say when you're young and very confident and also very impetuous, somebody has to be doing something wrong because this should work. This really should work. And so I set about trying to look at those studies, look at what people were doing in the field and trying to figure out where could it go wrong. And there were just tons of places because this is a hard group to work with. But for developing this class of drugs, what it came down to was managing adverse events, uh, peripheral adverse events that would break the blind and let people know which patients were receiving drug, and also the actual outcome measures, doing them carefully enough and um, exacting enough, taking a bit of science and applying science to it. And so I spent two years trying to figure out how did I want to do it, and then recruiting a good team of people, a good team of investigators to be around and to be part of that effort, who also believed it would work. And we all just sort of went at it the same way with a lot of intensity, a lot of commitment to excellence, and a determination to help these drugs realize their potential in the Alzheimer community. And that drug ended up being Aricept. And so then Aricept became the leading drug worldwide. It's been the leading drug worldwide for 25 years. But in the U.S., I took it from first dose in humans and then all the way through worldwide commercialization. At every step of the way, I was always doing something I had never done before. So I'd never done a phase two program when I started doing that phase two program. And I did not want to fail. And I'm very competitive. So I just figured out how you do this. How do you do it well? Where do people make mistakes? Where am I not going to make mistakes? Then it was time for phase three program. I'd never managed a phase three program. And so, okay, how do I want to spend the money? How do I want to make sure that this is successful for my company? How do other people do it? And how, how, how can you go wrong? Where are the mistakes that you can make? And again, so much comes down to that kind of forward thinking and execution. And you can't take your eye off the ball. So I would end up talking to my colleagues and other large cap companies who were trying to race for the same prize. And I would see how far they were removed from actual day-to-day -day activities. And I realized that that was a key component of it, that you have to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening day-to-day. -day. You don't micromanage anyone, but you need to know what's going on, what's happening every single day. And you can't just get a sort of a whitewashed review of it. You need to know know a lot of the gory details on what could be going wrong. That's That's just sort of the path through industry. And after that, I understand you then moved to Japan. So a bit of a culture shock. 
After that, I went uh, to Tokyo for three years on an expat assignment for Azai, and again, trying to expand and learn things new and different. And at that time, Azai was a fabulous company. It's still a fabulous company, but they didn't really have um, a portfolio management group. So they had this, they were achieving this massive worldwide success, but hadn't figured out yet, okay, how do we plan around that? as far as our manufacturing facilities, as far as being able to feed our sales force next year when they're tired of pitching Aricept, what do you do in a company? Well, you have to have a lot of forward thinking planning. And so I started a portfolio management group at that time, which I knew nothing about, but I went around and found who are the best companies at doing this? Who are the best people? Who, who do the best work? And so I sought them out and again, bringing their expertise in so that we could learn from it, not just so that I could learn, but so that everyone in the company could learn from the approach and the rigor of it and how you think about it. And again, where you can go wrong and not go wrong. So this is what we did with portfolio management and then in negotiations for Aricep worldwide, trying to get it approved, priced and in market, you learn a tremendous amount about what's important to other countries. If they're going to approve a drug, it's not like the U.S. where you have these are the criteria, you meet the criteria in two studies, safety is good, and then you can be approved in the market, you can set your own price and there you go. Most cases around the world, it's a very much um, a paired process. And you link what you're doing to their needs, their healthcare needs, uh, their, their sensibilities as a culture, what's important to them. And it's a much bigger consideration that you go through in those negotiations. So you also learn a lot about people. And um, many Americans don't travel outside the country a lot. I traveled outside to execute on studies or to go to scientific meetings, but that was my first time traveling to learn about, okay, what's important to them? What's important to this government and the way they care for their people? And it's eye-opening. <clears throat> it's eye-opening. And the three years I spent as an expat living, breathing, working every day in Japan, I felt like it would be okay because I'd been traveling there four or five times a year anyway. And it's not. It's life-changing. You know nothing about how to deal with the culture that you're in. So if you're asking for any entrepreneur, and I, I can't sort of extrapolate to all, all entrepreneurs, but for me, it's always been always stepping in to something where I know nothing about it but I need to find out and learn if I'm going to be successful. That has been what is fabulously interesting about it. That is what's been about it that makes me want to persevere and wants me to be successful at it. Because I, I don't know if you could ask for a better job than being an entrepreneur. I really don't. There's just so much out there you can do and everything can twist and turn. The path you take one day is going to lay out what the path is going to be in the future. And you may have to deviate from that or go in a different direction, but there's always a learning that's associated with it. And there's always the unknown and the fabulousness, the sheer fabulousness of learning about this new unknown. Some of the startups I've done have been less successful and less interesting, but you know what you learn through that? You learn, okay, what's not interesting? Well, there, is, there are so many elements of that story that I would love to dig deep into perhaps another time or offline. Um, certainly I feel that someone ought to buy the film rights to your life because what a fantastic story and background. But in particular for the purpose of this podcast, if you 
could perhaps tell me more detail about the company that you're now heading up, where you are now, what led you to this chapter of your story as an entrepreneur? I'd love to hear it. Uh, that part of my journey was, uh, <clears throat> again, at Roche, they were giving me some fabulous opportunities to, to do new and different things. And I was presenting some of that work. Um, they had been having some issues at that point with a drug called Versed, which was an injectable um, agent. It was very much like Valium. And so it was to put people in a state of conscious sedation to undergo various surgical procedures. But Valium, when you inject it, it's, it gets to the brain very quickly. It, it exerts its actions very quickly. Patients go down into their uh, conscious anesthesia in a very predictable way. Um, midazolam or Versed was different because it wasn't as brain permeable. And so what Roche had taken so much care and so much painstaking effort to do was to characterize that in the labeling and say, this is how you give it. You give it and you wait at least two minutes before you think about giving any more. But people weren't reading the directions on that. And so what was happening is with if you're with an experienced anesthesiologist, they're ready to handle everything. They know how to twist and turn, tweak everything to keep everyone in a really good place. If you're, say, in a gastroenterologist's office having <clears throat> a colonoscopy, and they're not going to be, especially back then in the early days of the drug, they're not going to be as familiar with using it and their past experiences with Valium, which is highly predictable. They're going to give the drug and they're going to be, okay, they're not down. They're not down. I'll give a little more. They're still not down. i to give a little more. And then they think, okay, a person's finally going down. They turn around to get the scope. They turn back and the patient's not breathing. How many how many endoscopy or colonoscopy facilities are actually equipped or were equipped at that time, which believe me was, you know, 20, 25 plus years ago. They weren't equipped at the time. So there were incidents of, of that happened that were quite unfortunate. So I sort of try to figure out a way, how do you show somebody? How do you create some data that can show them graphically? Here's what it looks like. Here's what the two different drugs look like as people are going down. So I remember creating just this method of, of measuring, getting a functional measure that I could capture in five-second epics and having people do it with the Versed, the midazolam, and with Valium and graphically show the difference with the midazolam people just being nice and conscious, nice and conscious, and then plummeting off into unconsciousness, and the versed people going down nice and slow and very predictably. And so when I was able to get that data, I was presenting it at a scientific meeting. And a colleague of mine from graduate school was there. We were having lunch together. Someone joined us who was this executive search person. And she just said, you're what this company needs because they need someone who's going to be willing to uh, help them through the process, take them through a process that they don't understand. So that was how I got the entree to Azai. And I went to go to Azai just because it was new and it was different. I had one task before I could get hold of the Alzheimer drug, and the Alzheimer drug was the one I wanted to work on. And that was a GI drug, a proton pump inhibitor that was on clinical hold at that time. So it was a matter of getting some microscope slides read, a little bit of preclinical work to get that done. And they said, when you get this done, then you can work on the other one. So I worked on the GI drug. Got that going into clinical trials in the U.S. and then said, okay, you said I could have this. Now it's time. 
And so that's when they let me start working on what's now known as Aricept. That's how I got into the Alzheimer field. And if I was to say one thing about the Alzheimer field, it's that once you are in it and you've had a success and you've had a chance to see the life-changing effect that small improvements in cognition and function can have, you can't really leave it. It's it's not the same. You could do another endeavor. You could do another entrepreneurial program or startup, but it's not the same. This is something that drives you and compels you. So this particular company, a Myriad Therapeutics that I'm at now, they were able to get a drug that I'd actually secured at a previous startup. And the previous startup ended up being a victim kind of of the 2009 financial crisis that occurred that most people nowadays don't even know about because they were too young when it happened. Um, A lot of monoclonal antibody therapies uh, failing to live up to their promise and people looking at development in Alzheimer's disease is just sort of a black hole for money. And Generally, too, seeing an effect that's not life-changing, I'm going to cure the disease and reverse it completely as being beneficial. And to me, all those three things were wrong. The financial crisis had nothing to do with Alzheimer's disease. It had to do with mortgage-backed securities and default credit swaps. But at the same time, everybody was hurting. The failure of monoclonal antibodies was not a failure of hypothesis. The hypothesis was good. It was just the early companies were doing this in patients who were already moderately demented and weren't seeing any improvement, weren't seeing any way to turn back the clock on the disease. And so then, too, the size of the benefit from a a symptom management drug is, is nothing to sneeze at. It's a big deal. But for people at that time, they were hoping to see cure and cure is much less impressive than improving function and improving cognition and helping people stay in their home, helping people not have to go to a nursing home, having a caregiver that can actually go to work most days of the week and not have to stay home because the patient's still capable of feeding themselves, dressing themselves, maybe even going out to the grocery store and being able to get home again. And all these things are important. People now are looking at it differently than they did then. Now they're starting to see the benefit to symptom management. And so it's a good time for us to go back and pick this drug up. The the company that had this drug originally, they ended up becoming insolvent because of these three major factors that were not under their control. Because the phase two studies that I designed and left with them actually worked. They actually worked and the drug was well tolerated, but you can't sometimes overcome that much bad news in the market or that much bad news in the front of Alzheimer's disease research. So uh, it went insolvent. The company returned the drug to the company it had licensed it from, which was a Japanese company called Zenyaku Kogyo. And after Azai became famous, many Japanese companies wanted to be just like Azai, and they wanted to follow the same template into Alzheimer's disease. They all knew me as Dr. Rogerson because I had been living there for three years, and Azai was now a, a, a worldwide known company. And so they wanted to follow that template. So Zenyaku Kogyo was willing to let, let me have a go at it again. And so for me, this is my second swing, and I don't want to miss. 
And it's a second swing, though, that happens to be happening at a time when since 2009, they're now uh, roughly 11 years later, was another huge financial downturn. And this time it was in the biotech sector that was hard hit, but all stocks in general were very hard hit. And in this case, it wasn't because of... um, mortgage-backed securities and default credit swaps. In this case, it was because all the fixes that were done to get the economy up and running 2010, 2011, basically uh, zero interest rates, pretty much free money. The economy had recovered, and then it recovered from the pandemic, and so inflation was rising. And all of a sudden, interest rates were not zero or close to zero anymore. They were starting to go up. And as money was no longer free, people were starting to think a little bit more about how they spent it. So probably 2019, 2020, a little bit in 2001, there were a lot of startups that were going public based on a dream or something very early in discovery. And they were massive IPOs, tons of money, market capitalizations, the likes of which I had not seen before. And I don't think we're going to see again for a long time. But again, the money was nearly free. So there you go. And then when the money started becoming a little bit more expensive, cost of capital was higher. Everyone drew back Uh, Then the stock market tanked. When the stock market tanked, the people with holdings weren't exactly liquid anymore because if they sold, they would be losing a lot, anywhere from 30 to 60 percent, depending on the sector. So here we are trying to fund a company during the middle of this, which is not of the drugs making and it's not of any particular drug companies making. It's just part of the ups and downs of the financial sector. Uh, Doesn't make it any less challenging to contend with, but I still uh, believe that we can craft a story that is compelling enough and they can see that the spend is reasonable enough to go ahead and invest. It doesn't have to be a massive IOP, uh, IPO of $300 million. That's not what we, what we need to go forward. We need a whole lot less. We need good old-fashioned venture capital that will help us fund the studies through a B round, a C round, and then later an IPO as we get closer to commercialization. So that's an older path, but that's a path that works because you're not throwing too much money too soon at something that has a high probability of failure. Does that make sense? And slightly different line of questioning, but how do you persuade investors that they can essentially trust you with their money? And how do you feel that industry and stakeholder demands have changed in the past 12 to 24 months? You've returned to a startup type environment, having referred to it as your second swing, which I thought was a very eloquent way of referring to it. And I wondered what your perspective was on these demands on companies such as yours compared to when perhaps you had previously worked for a much larger organization. Well, I think sometimes investors are coming to grips with it a little bit more on looking at the probability of regulatory and technical success and commercial success. And so not so much big, big, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars going into discovery related companies. They're starting to think more about now, okay, if this is a a discovery company, this is how about how much it should cost to get to a point where we know whether this has a likelihood of continuing on. So people being a little bit more circumspect about how they spend their money. And I make sure when they look at our program, one, I show them the data, all the data. They can see everything because you cannot hide from the data. And in our case, we have a drug that is well tolerated and that's going to do exactly what we say it's going to do. So show the data. And two, show the costs. What do you really need to get it to a point where they feel 
comfortable adding even more money into it to help it go further. How do you do that? And again, being straight with people. And it's really hard in the financial business because things do get shaded in ways that are sometimes more flattering than they need to be. And you can't just say, hey, I'm honest, trust me. All I can do is say, look at my track record. I don't fail at this. And I don't fail at it for a reason. And it's because I really look at the data long and hard. And I think about how much money we're going to spend. Even with Azai, we were a startup with deep pockets. But every day I thought about how can we do this better, faster, cheaper, and still get it done? Because I don't want Azai spending money they don't need to on this. I don't want to throw money at it. So spending prudently is part of it and having a good candidate And sometimes instead of just talking about my own story, I talk about a company called Karuna Therapeutics. And the uh, former CEO, he's just stepped away, is uh, Steve Paul. And he has actually, um, he has had this main drug, Xenomaline, since at least 1990. Because I remember him. I remember going to meetings where Lily had this drug called xenomaline that was a muscarinic agonist. And they were in the way to develop it for Alzheimer's disease. The peripheral adverse events were just really tragic and they were rate limiting. There was not a way that it was going to go forward. But he never gave up on his vision for that. So he had other people within Lilly working on it. He created this very entrepreneurial startup within Lilly called Chorus. And Chorus had it for a little bit uh, and was continuing to develop it. But still, he wasn't getting any traction. And I think he just continued to stay with it now for about more than 30 years. He has continued to believe in this drug and stay with it and be compelling and find people to invest in him. And finally, he met up with a founder who had a peripherally acting antagonist. So all the wonderful central effects of xenolamine can be realized, but the peripheral effects can be blocked by giving this as a fixed combination. And they worked on it and figured out what was the right mixture between the two. And he started Karuna. And I applaud him every day because this drug has just been proven effective for agitation and delusions and schizophrenia. And that's a really, really tough indication to get. And I know he's going to continue. So here's someone who's had many shots on goal with this drug, but he didn't give up and he's successful. So I say, take a look at this now and look at how much this is going to make when it is commercialized. One, you're going to be doing something great for patients that are very hard to treat. So keep that in mind up front. But for companies who are willing to believe in him and to keep pushing him forward, the commercial market is good too. You can do both. You can do good for people and good for commercialization. This drug is very similar to that because the mechanism is easy to understand and the mechanism has proof of concept behind it and the path to getting to market is not expensive and it's not long. It's not one of those really wild shots on goal. So when I tell my story, I emphasize basically the probability of regulatory and technical success, and I'm willing to show them the data that demonstrates that. And I'm willing to show them the cost structure so that they can be uh, assured probably as much as possible that the spend that we're asking them for will be used wisely and that they're likely to be successful. And as we're looking deeper into 2023, what do you see as the major tailwinds that will effectively steer your company into the position that you ultimately would like it to be in? I I think the biggest thing is um, 
investors like to invest. They do like to invest. And so when the interest rates started going up and capital was more expensive, uh, they had a reaction to it, which I expect. I think learning to live with the new normal is going to be something that they will all get used to. Okay, yes, it's going to cost more money to get capital, but is this any more than, say, it was 20 years ago? The answer is no, and everyone was doing just fine. So let's let's think a little bit more rationally about how we spend. Investors will do that because investors do like to create. They, they do get driven by this idea of investing in companies that can be successful. They live to invest. And so getting getting um, used to the new normal of the cost of capital being higher, getting used to the fact that, yes, in some of these investments they've made, they've lost some money and that wasn't great, but not everything is a loss of money. Pick your pick your companies wisely. They'll get used to that and they will go right back to, to doing what they should do. And I'm just hoping that we're at the front of the line when it comes to that, because we've always presented ourselves in a very straightforward way very straightforward. And I think that helps a lot. So the trade win, it's just time. Time for investors to get used to cost of capital being higher. Time for the market to recover a bit from the lows that it was at before. And the market will recover. And then when their own investments have recovered a lot, they're going to be more liquid and be able to turn those investments around, have more cash. It's just sort of a, it could be a vicious circle, but I also look at it, it can be a hopeful circle. You know, and and that's sort of the way finance runs. Simply put, would you do anything differently if you were to start again? No, I love my life. I am so lucky. I always look at it every day and think, I am so lucky. There are times when you're home and you're crying in your pillow or, you know, cursing a lot. Um, every day is not wonderful. But would I change any path? <clears throat> what I say, oh, I shouldn't have gone to that company because this didn't work out or that didn't work out. And the answer to that is no, because I really do believe those things that don't work out are important. You have to learn how to fail. You have to know how to win. You have to be determined to win, but you have to know how to fail and get back up. And maybe that goes back to figure skating because there you, you fall down a lot and you make a fool of yourself a lot. And you have to be willing to get back up and say, hey, that wasn't bad, was it? It looked pretty good, didn't it? And you just keep going. So there's part of that personality that gets into it. Anyone in this field, if they're concerned about failure, they're in the wrong field because you're going to fail. And lastly, what other advice aside from the wealth of knowledge that you have shared here would you give to business leaders, be that in the same or a wildly different field? Oh, there, there's so much. Something that is I hate to generalize it because usually it's going to be given by how much I know the person I'm talking to and what I know about them and how they react to things. But if I had to give a generalizable advice, it would be to be brutally honest with yourself about what you're doing, what your skill sets are, where you need to work. Be brutally honest about that and also get don't get too enamored with the people that that you're looking to work for and with. Also know what their strengths and weaknesses are. People are fallible. We're all human. And even the greatest leaders in the world, they're fallible. And if you get a feeling for where they're going to not be the world's greatest whatever, you can accept that part of them. 
and not be discouraged when things don't go well or you don't get supported in the way that you think you need to be supported. You just have to realize the fallibility of every human being, the fact that sometimes we do miserable things and sometimes we do wrongheaded things. But if you recognize it when you don't get halted by it, you don't end up being discouraged by it. You look at the situation and you find out, okay, what's my solution to move forward in spite of this? How do I keep going in spite of this? And then also equally important, this is an exercise in futility. And so why, you know, I can recognize that I can still like this person that I'm working for. I can still like this situation, but recognize what is an ex, uh, sort of an exercise in futility that you're not going to be able to get around. Um, and I think that's the hardest part for most young people coming up. They want to idolize their leaders. And that's great because that's how you learn so many fabulous skills. I still remember the person who I watched once and I thought, that's who I want to be like as a manager. That's the kind of skill set I, I want to have. And you don't forget about that, but just remember people are fallible and nobody's perfect. And then you don't get quite so disheartened when the person shows their fallibility or their humanity. You see it and, and you need to contend with it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Founders Keepers. And if you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review on whatever listening platform you are using. Be sure to tune in next time for another founder's story.